Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church. We gather every week in Canton, Georgia to worship and grow together through God's Word. We exist because generations matter. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. Well, we are thankful that you're here today. We're glad that you're here. And it's Sunday fun day, so in a few minutes, again, get you some funnel cake. Uh, that's of God. Get you some snow cones and cotton candy. I just saw a man that I know is nearly 85 years old get into the pirate boat ship. And I am so excited for us to all be able to participate in that. So you can get on the Ferris wheel, have a blast. It's going to be a lot, a lot of fun. But again, today I am also excited that you have chosen to be with us on week three of the series that we're involved in right now called Five Things That Will Keep Your Family Together. And what we started out with the last Sunday of July, just before we entered into this school year, was we started out on this 30-day journey of really investing in and focusing our time and attention on families. We said that for us, if we are a church here at Canton Church that exists because generations matter, we recognize that some of you, you've had faith handed off to you from mom or dad or grandparents or aunts or uncles, or you were a part of a church, a healthy, life-giving church growing up. And so you recognize, hey, faith's a part of your journey and it's a part of your story. Others of you, you're a first generation of faith. You are making some commitments right now with your life that are going to outlast your life. And you're going to be able to pass on faith now to your children and your grandchildren. They have to own it personally. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean your children will be a Christian. They have to own that personally. But when you focus on the right things, we believe that God will allow you, kind of almost like a baton, to pass on faith to the next generation. And so we believe in that. We we exist because generations matter. And so these five weeks, we've said, hey, we want to spend some time focusing our attention on families and helping families to really build their lives on the right things. And so the first week of the series, we talked about this idea that uh, for us, if we're going to build our lives in a way that our families stay together for the next 50 years, then we're going to focus on the things that will keep our family together for the next 50,000 years. Now, we chose that 50,000 number as an arbitrary number to really represent eternity. And we were talking about every individual person we believe is going to spend eternity somewhere. And so if we want our families to stay together for eternity then we also want to recognize that our family can use those same principles of building our life on a relationship with God that will keep our families together for the next 50 years. Last week, in week two, we talked about the idea that in our families, we have to learn how to forgive. We all recognize that we're imperfect people, a part of imperfect families, and the reality of our lives is that the people that can hurt us the most are usually the people that are the closest to us. And if we don't learn how to forgive well, including some deep hurts and pains, then we're going to turn into the kinds of people who hurt people. And the reality is that hurt people will eventually hurt people. So that's what we talked about last week. What we said is that over these last three weeks and and over the next two weeks, we're going to talk about the reality that most families are not doing well. And I've shared some statistics each week with you. I want to share some of those again just to give you a context. We said that somewhere between 40 and 50% of couples divorce One in three kids lives in a home without a father. The average student loan debt per household is $49,000. Over 7 million children take a form of antidepressant medication, and over 3,000 high school students will attempt suicide today. And for us, we recognize that these statistics are just a snapshot to show that most families, the average family, is not doing well. But for us, we believe that you don't have to be average, that you can actually exceed all of the expectations for your family. And so we've been on this journey for the last two weeks and including today and then the next two weeks, we're at the halfway point 
we really want to spend some time focusing on what we believe are these five principles to keep our families together and really for them to be enriched families. And one of the pieces of that is not just being here and listening to these five principles on Sundays, though that's important to us. We also have asked you to take part in the 30-day family challenge. It's on our website. You can go to cantonchurch.com and right at the top there's a little button that says family challenge. And on that site, you can download the 30-day calendar. You can download some things that are about uh, going on a date night as a couple. You can download some devotionals to take your kids through devotion, Bible study, and stories together. Real quick hitting things that you can do at night. We've talked about some things that you can do on that website for game nights, that you're going to take an unplug night where you unplug or turn off all the devices and just spend some time looking eyeball to eyeball at one another and talking together. Uh, and so we want you to take these 30 days. And so maybe you've been on this journey with us already. Maybe you haven't. Today's the first day you've even heard about it. Jump in, download the resource, get the calendar, and jump into this 30-day challenge with us through the remainder of our time. One of the biggest parts of this challenge is we asked you to be in church together all five weeks of the series. Now, if you've already failed at that, that's okay. You're not a failure in life, right? If something came up, you just weren't able to do it. Or maybe, again, you just showed up today for the first time. That's fine. We're asking you starting today to be with us the last three weeks of this series. We have totally bribed your children, okay? We are not above bribery. And so we told your kids, beginning on week one and every other week, we've said, hey, if you check in four out of five weeks in a row, we're going to give you a family movie pack for you and your family. And so we're going to bribe them. And so if you tell them, hey, we're not going to church tomorrow, they're going to be mad at you, not us. That's really our goal in life, okay? So you may say, well, hey, three weeks or four weeks or five weeks in a row going to church, that'd be like a personal best. We hope that you get a personal best. We want you to be here with us. Today, after spending the first two weeks talking about a relationship with God and talking about forgiveness, today I want to spend some time talking about something that may not seem like a spiritual issue. I want to talk today about the idea of margin, not margarine, that's bad for your family, but margin, right? And when I say that, maybe you would say, that doesn't sound spiritual, that doesn't sound like the Bible, that doesn't sound like something I should be focused on as a follower of Jesus Christ, but really this idea of margin is something that's very biblical. What we find is that margin really comes to us from the very beginning of the story of God. God himself built and created everything that was created of the heavens and the earth in the first six days. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And so then when he was creating the law for the people to follow in the Old Testament, the children of Israel, he put together these 10 commandments for those people to follow as they were beginning to establish themselves as a people among a different group of people that believed differently than they did. God said, hey, here's 10 pillars for you to take and establish your lives around that will set you apart. If you live this way, it will set you apart. People will look at you and go, they're so different than anybody else we're interacting with. There's something different about them. And they will see Jehovah God working through your lives. And so there were some really easy things to understand. He said, hey, don't kill anybody, right? I mean, that's just a good principle. Just don't, don't kill your brother, right? And if you got a brother, you know that's a tough thing to live out, right? He says, also, don't steal things that aren't yours. Don't take something that does not belong to you. These are principles we teach our children. But then as, a, as one of those 10, you know what he said? He said, keep the Sabbath day holy. He said, as you're living your lives, as you're doing your thing, one of the things you got to focus on is you got to focus on taking a break, building in some margin to your time. It seems that more and more and more, we are consumed by what we can produce. 
It seems like all of our lives is this effort to produce more and produce more and produce more and accomplish more. And, and that's great, but like we get promoted on our jobs or we get good grades in school and those are the things that are affirmed. And so then we think that's how we get people to like us. That's how we find value in our lives is just producing more, producing more, being better, doing better, getting the gold star, getting the A, getting the raise, getting the bonus, getting the attaboy. That's what our lives become about. And God says, no, 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 if your value is not going to be found in other people, but your value is going to be found in me, you have to set aside time where you are not producing anything and still believe that you are worth everything. That's what margin, that's what the Sabbath is all about. It is an incredibly spiritual idea. There's a great story in the book Divine Mentor by Wayne Cordero where he tells the story of one of the trees that is, was planted in 1606, and it grew to over 240 feet tall. And then a few years ago, it fell over. It was the first of the trees in Yosemite National Park to fall over in over 100 years. 240 feet tall, uh, four, five, 400 years old, and all of a sudden, it falls over. And so he retells the story of how then the scientists and the people that were a part of the park there, they began to study to try to figure out what caused this tree to fall. There was no storm. There was no hurricane. There was no tornado. There was no sudden winds there. They, they, they studied it. There was no damage by insects or there wasn't anything else happening to the soil there. What they came to find as they studied this tree is that it wasn't any of the storms, it wasn't any of the big things. What they attributed falling to was foot traffic. As people began to visit Yosemite National Park, they started walking up to these towering sequoias and they would walk up and get their picture taken and they would walk around it and they would try to see how long it took them to walk around right at the base of the tree and they would stand there together. And What they recognized is that it was foot traffic that caused the tree to fall. And so they made a decision that they were going to build a fence around the root system of the oldest trees in the park to keep people from being able to damage the root systems of these trees. They decided to create margin. And I recognize that in our families and in our lives, we have root systems. And if we're not careful, those root systems don't seem to get deep enough that they can withstand storms and they can withstand the pain and the turmoil that may come. But even if the root systems are deep, even if they are, are in community with other people, if we're not careful, the foot traffic, the busyness around us can rob us of our strength. And so God says, what I want you to do is I want you to create some margin in your life that will, that will protect the root systems of your lives. And so for us today, we want to spend some time talking about how to build fences around our family root systems to create that margin. We want to talk about protecting ourselves. How many of you would say today, Jeremy, I would love it if I could get more money or and more time and or more vacation time on my job? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. If you're raising your hand, you're like most of us. If you are not, you're a liar or we need to borrow some money from you is really what happens. So if you would say, hey, I just, I'd love it if I could get some money, if I could get some time, if you know, my job would give me any vacation time, or if my job would give me two weeks of vacation time, or three weeks, whatever the number is, like I would just love to get more money or more time, more vacation time, I would say to you, those things would be awesome. 
But if you don't have margin built into your life, then those things are not going to protect you. It's not about more money or more time. It's not about more time away. I think today the focus of this message is really about courage. It's really about courage. It's not about getting more money or more time. It's just about the courage to say no. The courage to say no to some things that would rob us of those things that are most valuable to us. You know, when I think about our families, I recognize that all of us want to protect our families. But what if I told you that I knew for sure, like I was certain, somebody had tipped me off, that someone is going to come to your house in the next few days. I can't tell you exactly which day and exactly which time, but they were going to come to your house and they were going to rob you of the things that were most valuable to you. They were going to come in and take your prized possessions. They were going to come in and hurt the relationships that meant the most to you. I mean, they were coming to your house. You're going to respond in one of three ways. If you own a gun, you're going to make sure it's close. If you don't own a gun, you're going to go buy a gun. Or you're going to get the alarm system activated. You're going to make sure we know the code. You're going to make sure the doors are locked. So those are the two. Or if you are not a fight personality, but you are a flight personality, you're going to move. You're just going to move. If they know where my house is, i got to move to a different house. So I'm just going to make sure they can't find me. But here's what I would say to you. I can't say with certain that someone's going to come into your house and rob you. But I do think that there is an enemy that is in our families right now robbing us of the value that exists within our families. And I would say that that enemy is stress. Stress is defined this way. Stress is a state of emotional strain or tension resulting from very demanding circumstances. Stress is a state of emotional strain or tension resulting from very demanding circumstances. I think stress is killing our families. We're emotionally strained because of the demands on us. And unfortunately, we won't see the long-term consequences until it's too late. Earlier this summer, my wife, Corey, who was up here with me just a minute ago, and our two oldest sons went to Guatemala with the missions team from our church that went down to serve at the orphanage that we support there in Guatemala City. And so they went on that trip. Well, we have four kids. That means that I got to hang out at home with our two youngest kids, 10-year-old Tucker and 8-year-old Kinley. I got to say, I did an outstanding job. I really feel like I did well. I, I passed that test. Now, we did not bathe near as much as we should have. But man, did we have a lot of fun that week. I mean, we did a ton of fun things. One of the things that we did is one of the days we went to Airborne, which is the indoor trampoline park here in Canton. It's a phenomenal place. If you got kids, you need to go take them. It's so much fun. If you don't have kids, they've got an awesome work area where you can go in and have meetings or you can just spend some time working. And so I took Tucker and Kinley that day and we paid for our, our, our time together. We, we donated some things to Must Ministry and got a discount on the rate because I love to get a good deal. So we found out you could bring some canned goods. We got a discount. They went in. They jumped. There were some parents that chose to sit in the chairs right next to the trampolines because I, I think, I'm assuming, I can only assume, they're worried what other parents are thinking about them. I chose to go into the quiet soundproof room, very far removed from where all the children are screaming. And I put on headphones and I worked on the sermon that week. I thought, they're not going to let my kids out of the building without me. And so if they need me, they'll come get me. It's fine. I got coffee. I sat in the massage chair. It was really a day for me, not even for the kids. And so we're sitting there, the kids are playing, they're having a blast. It was awesome. We had a great day. When they finished, we'd get in the car, we'd go home. Late that night, Kinley, our eight-year-old daughter, she says to me, Dad, my belly is hurting. My first thought was, we caught some sickness at the stinking indoor trampoline park. Mom is never going to forgive us, right? Then I thought, well, that's not probably not happening. We wouldn't know that yet. So I said, okay, well, why don't you go to the bathroom? I'm going to get you some medicine. You know, let's take a bath, make sure you're feeling better. So we did all that. She went to bed. She woke up the next morning. She was like, Dad, my belly hurts so 
bad. All right, well, what do we do? Okay, so let's give her some more medicine, maybe take another bath. I don't know. That just cures everything. And so I was like, well, let's just watch it today. Let's be careful what we eat. Later in the day, she was like, Dad, my belly hurts so bad. So I thought, okay, there's a recurring theme here. I'm a smart dad. There's something going on. So I tried to get her to describe to me the pain that she was feeling. Well, it was pretty quick as she starts to tell me what's happening. I recognize it's not her belly that hurts. It's the muscles of her stomach that hurt. She had injured herself doing flips in the trampoline park. And so as I would touch her, oh, yeah, yeah, it's right there. And as she would stretch, she would start to feel that pain release. And so we just, we okay, we'll take some medicine. We'll feel better. I think for some of us, if we're not careful, what we don't realize is that in the stress and the hustle and bustle of doing life and having fun, we don't recognize the pain that it's causing to our bodies until a day or two later, a week later, a month later, a year later in our lives. And so today what I want to talk about is I want to talk about creating margin to protect us from the stressors of life. Here's how I would define margin. Margin is the gap between where we are and our limits. Margin is the gap between where we are and our limits. And for most of us, as we think about this idea of margin, we go to God's word here. We're going to talk about this idea that usually what feels most important to us is not most important. And it's hard to be maxed out and in the moment at the same time. We see this illustrated in an incredible story in Luke chapter 10. This is a story of a family. It's two sisters that live together. And we're going to see two different reactions to what could be a stressful situation. Luke chapter 10, verse 38, this is what it says. As Jesus and his disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught, but Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, when I read this story, I can't help but think about the family dynamic, okay? I assume, maybe it's a bad assumption, but I assume that Martha is the oldest sister, right? I'm an oldest child, and I know that all younger children are lazy. That's what I know, okay? Maybe if you're a younger child, you're like, that's not fair, but kind of it's true. Like, I can see that on your face. Maybe it's not true of your family. It's true in my family. I have a brother. I love him. I just FaceTimed him. You know what he was doing? Laying in bed. You know why? Because he's sick, kind of. He's kind of a baby. I don't know. He may be sick, but you never know with him. So I assume reading this story that Martha is the older sister, and I assume that Mary is the younger sister. Perhaps that's not true. But what we see is one of them is doing all the work, getting ready for Jesus and the disciples and the dinner and the meal and the thing and the event. Mary, what's she doing? She's laying around. She's just hanging out at the feet of Jesus, soaking it all up. Every time in my family when I was, uh, when I was growing up that work needed to be done, my brother conveniently disappeared. I don't even know where he went. I'm not even sure how it happened. He had to go to the bathroom. He wasn't feeling well. He went to the neighbor's house. He, I don't even know where he went. But if it was time to unload the car or clean the bedroom, he was gone, right? That's kind of what we see in this story. And if you're an oldest child or you're one of those like really driven personalities that wants to accomplish and, and get it all prepared and do it all right, like you probably, like me, identify with Martha. I mean, Jesus, the Son of God, and his disciples are coming for dinner. There is work to be done. In our house, we've got four kids. I've talked about them already today. 
And, and I got to be honest, like we keep a clean house. It's picked up pretty regularly. But if you call me and say, hey, we're stopping by, we're going to DEFCON 3 mode to make sure that it's really, really, really clean for you. That's the plan. We're going to Febreze everything. It always smells like a meadow here. I mean, that's just what we're going to do, right? We're going to tell the kids, pick it all up. Just throw it upstairs. They won't go upstairs. Just throw it upstairs. It'll be fine. We'll get it in a minute. Well, that's kind of my Martha that takes over. Like, let's get it all fixed. Let's prepare something. Corey jumps in. Let's make cookies for people. It was like, they're not expecting cookies. They didn't even tell us they were coming. It's fine. We're going to have cookies for them, right? And so I'll make last-minute trips to Publix for ingredients to make cookies. And we're just getting all ready for you as you come to our house. This is what Martha's doing. She's doing all the things. But as you read through this story, did you notice when she gets mad and she's like, Lord, why don't you tell my sister to come and to help me and to, to do it? Did you, did you notice what it said in verse 40? It said Martha was distracted. Martha was distracted. And Jesus was trying to teach Martha something here in this moment that what she was focused on was not necessarily the main thing. It wasn't the most important thing. If we were to do an honest assessment of our lives, we would probably admit that we're distracted too. I know I am. I know I get distracted pretty easily by some things that probably don't matter in the larger scheme of things. I, I think the greatest culprit of distraction sometimes is the technology that connects us. I mean, we could be sitting there having a conversation, and I have mastered, I know I'm the only one in the room. I've mastered the ability to have a conversation and respond to you without even looking at you. I can be distracted and miss what is right in front of me. It's one of the reasons that we've challenged you during this 30-day challenge to have at least one unplugged night. It may be all that you can convince your kids to do in 30 days is one night, right? We're just going to unplug for one night. We have the ability to get so distracted by a lot of things. I remember several years ago when our kids were much younger that I had a much longer commute coming home at the end of every day. Maybe not as long as some of you, but for me at that point, it was a longer commute. It was 30, 40, 50 minutes, depending on traffic, sometimes even longer than that. And so I had set up the rhythm in my day that any phone call I got after lunch that did not need an immediate answer I'd just write that on a post-it note, and on my way home, on the commute, I would return those phone calls in the car on the way home. Well, it was a great plan. I loved it. I felt like it helped me to maximize my time, and, and it was great, except that I can't tell you the number of days that I would walk in the front door of our house finishing up the last phone call. I felt like, as I was trying to get home quicker that I was still maximizing my time in the car and honoring family time to get home and to do what was necessary and to play with the kids. But there were so many times that I was, they were coming up and they wanted to show me the glitter thing that they had made in craft time or the test that they took today and they made an A or they got a gold star or whatever it was that they had created for that day or they just wanted to talk to me or they just wanted to listen to me. And so they were coming up and grabbing onto my legs and showing me all this stuff. And I'm like, that is so great. I love that. Hold on just a second. What were you saying? Okay, yeah, yeah, that's good. I, I love that. Okay, yeah, that is. I love that. That is great. I was distracted. And I've said many times that so often in my life, the voice of the Holy Spirit in my life has sounded a lot like the voice of my wife in my life. And I mean that sincerely. If God says that we were put together and she is my help mate, I can't tell you the number of times that God has helped me through my help mate. And if you have a spouse, I encourage you, tune into their voice 
as they're in pursuit of God and you're in pursuit of God, it's amazing how God will speak through their voice so that you can hear his voice. And so Corey said to me one day, she was like, I love what you're doing. I love how you're doing your phone calls on your way home. I love that. I think that's great. Helps you to maximize your time. That's awesome. She was like, I would rather you spend a few extra minutes finishing the call in the car than to come into the house on the phone. The kids don't understand why you're distracted and why you're not responding. And, and I would love it. So here's what I did. I was like, okay, I'll do that. And so I would be on the phone and I started to make the commitment that like, I'm not going to make the last phone call as I'm pulling in the neighborhood. I, I can't finish that call. So it's going to cause me to extend beyond the time that I want to. But if I'm on a call and I'm getting to the house... I'll sit in the driveway, I'll circle the neighborhood, whatever it is, so that when I hang up, that's when I walk in, so that I can walk in and be fully present. Wherever my feet are, I want to be fully present there. And so I'm sure my neighbors in our old neighborhood thought that I was a lunatic, because I probably circled that neighborhood a thousand times over six or eight months, just finishing up phone calls so that when I pulled in, I was ready to be home. There were times that I pulled into the driveway and my kids are staring out the window. They see daddy, but they can't talk to daddy yet, but they see daddy, but they're like, why is daddy not coming in? And daddy's like on the phone. I'm like, hey, I'm coming. I'm coming. So then I just started circling the neighborhood so they wouldn't have to wait on me. I was distracted. So I decided to create less distraction. I decided to create some margin in my life. Because here's the reality. It all feels important, doesn't it? Like checking your email to make sure before you kind of finish the day, like, you know, it's, you're, you're off the clock, you're off work, but you just need to see if anybody responded after you left to see if anybody said the thing about the project. It all feels important. The sales call feels important. The practice feels important. The game feels important. It all feels important. But what did we say the definition of stress was? The definition of stress was those things that create emotional strain from demanding circumstances. They're demanding. They're demanding of our time and our energy Everybody wants a little bit more of us than they currently have. I've had some injuries in my life. I was an athlete as a child, a teenager, and into early adulthood. And so I've had some injuries, but I've never had a stress fracture. But in doing a little bit of reading about stress fractures, usually for athletes, and especially runners, you know what causes a stress fracture? Repetitive use. Pounding the pavement over and over and over and over again. A stress fracture doesn't usually come as a result of getting hit or some type of major trauma. It usually comes as a result of repetition. And as I think about that kind of injury and the definition of that word, stress fracture, I recognize that in our families, some of us are being fractured through the stress of repetition. Going all day. Every day, all week, every week, all month, every month, all year, every year. And we don't even recognize, like Kinley, that we're hurting ourselves because it all feels right in the moment. The reality is, for so many of us, the reason we're doing it is because we want to do the right things. We're worried about doing the right things. That's what Jesus said to Martha. He said, I know you're, you're worried about getting it all done. You're worried. Jesus talked about worry in another place in Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 33. Talk about this idea of worry as Jesus addresses it. He says this. He says, so don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat and what will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. 
I got to be honest, when I read this, I recognize that for me, I don't spend a lot of time worried about where I'm going to sleep tonight. I don't spend a lot of time worried about what I'm going to eat next. I'm going to eat funnel cake next. I know that, right? I don't spend a lot of time usually worried about what I'm going to wear. Some of you, maybe that is a reality of worry for you. You worry about where you're going to stay. You worry about what you're going to eat. You worry about not having the things to provide for you or for your family. And I recognize those worries. But even if those are not your worries, you worry about other things. Perhaps you worry about your kid's future or your grandkids, their education, their social skills, their friendships. We worry about what people think about us, keeping up with our neighbors, being viewed as a good mom or a good dad or a good husband or a good wife by other people in our lives. We worry about where we're going to go on vacation next or if we can even afford it. We worry about what we drive or what we can drive or what we're going to drive next. Maybe we're worried about inconsequential things in our lives. We worry about all of these things. But here's what happens to our families. Our fear and our worry causes us to keep saying yes when we should be saying no. But we're afraid to say no. Recently, a, a mom was asked, what's the last thing that you said yes to that you didn't want to but fear caused you to say yes even when you wanted to say no? And she said, I hate to admit this, but she said, I, I said yes to working the Halloween party for my daughter's class at school, even though I didn't want to, even though I didn't have the time to, because I was afraid that if I said no, the other moms in the class would think I wasn't a good mom. Now, maybe you sit in the room and you go, that's crazy. I would never worry about that. But I feel like there's some of us in the room that it's that kind of fear that causes us to continue to say yes to some things that we should be saying no to. It's fear. It's the worry. It's the anxiety, the anxiousness of how will people perceive me if I say no. Imagine the scenario where you say to your kids, we're not going to go on vacation this year. We're going to save this money and keep some margin in our budget. Imagine if you said to your extended family, we just don't have the money this year to exchange Christmas presents. And so you don't have to get anything for us. We're not going to be getting gifts for you this year. We're not going to go into debt and do all that kind of stuff. We've got to build some margin into our, like that gives some of us like anxiety to think about saying no. But perhaps that's the exact conversations we need to have because we're trying to do the right thing, but we're afraid to say no. Saying no terrifies us. If you're a type A, driven, like you're a force to be reckoned with. You're an Enneagram, one, three, six, or uh, yeah, seven, eight. Like you are, uh, you're, you're driving all the time. Sometimes we say yes instead of saying no because of FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. That's what we, we say. No, no, I, I got to say yes. My coworkers are going to think poorly of me. They're going to think negatively of me. I, I got I to gotta take one more mountain. I got I to gotta kill this thing. I got to kill this project. I got to get the promotion. I got to keep driving, keep driving, keep. Others of us, maybe you're not a driven type A. You're not a one, three, seven, eight. You're a, you're a, a people pleaser. You're an Enneagram two, six, or nine. You, you can't say no because you don't want people to be mad at you. And so when the room mom calls you and says, hey, can you make um, 900 glitter headbands and laminate all of the work ever in the history of the world by tomorrow? 
You're like, yes. I, I guess I can do that. Because we're afraid. We're just afraid. We're afraid of missing out on something. We're afraid of the perception of others. We're afraid that people won't understand why we said no. We've allowed the fence around our roots, if we had a fence at all, to be dictated by someone else's rules for our family and someone else's value system for our lives until the point where we just have to take the fence down because we no longer have the ability to say no to anybody because we just keep saying yes to everybody. Pastor Andy Stanley, who's a pastor here in our town, he's written a lot of great books. He wrote one years and years and years ago called Choosing to Cheat. It had a profound impact on my life. I'm going to sum the book up for you so you don't have to buy it. If you're going to buy it, just give me the money. I'm about to tell you what the book is about, okay? Here's what he says. He says, every time you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else. You say yes to one relationship, you're saying no to spending time in a different relationship. You say yes to staying late for work, not for like the anomaly, not to prepare for the special project presentation tomorrow, like the biggest thing of this quarter or this month, not that thing, just Tuesday, just Thursday. Just can't turn it off, can't stop producing, can't stop working. Every time you say yes to that, you say no to your spouse and your children about dinner together tonight. But the same is true on the opposite side of the equation. Every time you say yes to going to the Halloween party in your child's class and being there and making all the glitter things and handing out the cookies that look like ghosts and like all those things, you're saying no to your coworkers to be present at staff meeting. Every yes is also a no. And every no is also a yes. So how do we figure this thing out? Like, how do we win? We build a fence around our root system and our values and the life-giving sources of our lives. And we just say, anything outside of that can be a yes. But if you ask me to do something on Thursday night, That's, that's game night this week. No. Oh, you want to you wanna do something for lunch on Friday? That's our Friday. No. I would love to. If we can pick another day, I won't just say no. I'll give you a different yes. But you don't get Fridays. She gets Fridays. There's a fence. So no. Oh, you want me to pay this, do this, join this, add this? I mean, I, I look at the account. I probably could. Maybe I want to. But if I say yes to that, then I got to say no to family vacation this summer. And it may not look like other people's family vacation. It may not be a week. 
in an amazing beach house. It may be a staycation for three days at home. But I'm sorry. No. I'm not talking about being mean. I'm not talking about being rude. I'm just saying what we do is we put the big rocks in first so that when anybody comes to us and they say, hey, I want to add something to your schedule. I want to add something to your budget. I want you to make a decision that you did not originate the idea for. You can be courageous and you can say, you know what? I've got margin in my life. We've got margin in our family. We've got margin in our finances. We've got margin in our schedule. Let's do it. Or you say, I'm so sorry. If I say yes to that, I have to say no to something else that is more important to me. Five things that will keep your family together. One of them is margin. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. Nobody looking around. If you'd say, Jeremy, for me, the decision that I need to make today is to ask Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of my life. We've been talking about it throughout the day in various ways. I need to acknowledge that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and ask God to do an eternal work because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If that's you today, would you just lift your hand right where you're at so we can pray for you? Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you so much. Now, if you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, as much as it depends on me, for my life and for my family, I want to live with margin. I want to have the courage to say no to some good things so that I can say yes to the best things. And I want you to pray for me that I'll have that courage. Would you lift your hand right where you're at? Thank you so much. God, we love you today. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in this church. And God, I pray for every person that lifted their hands today to ask you to be the Lord and Savior of their life. Forgive their sins and lead their lives from this moment forward. Do the work that only you can do today, God. We thank you for who you are and what you do for our souls. And God, I pray now for every person that wants to have the courage to say no to some good things so that they can say yes to the best things. Give them courage. Give them confidence. Give them boldness. Help them to articulate the values of their life, the values of their schedule and their time and their money so that they build a fence around their root system and the busyness of life and the stress of life doesn't rob them of their life. Help us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.